come to the concluding section of the greater discourse to Sakaludai, Sutra number 77. And last time we finished explaining the section on the different kinds of supernormal power. Okay, so now we come to the divine ear element. This is the Diva Sota, Diva Sota doctrine. And so the Buddha states that he is, I have proclaimed to my disciples the way whereby with the divine ear element, which is purified and surpasses the human, they hear both kinds of sounds, the divine and the human, those that are far as well as near. That is the divine ear element, it's a special kind or special faculty of hearing which is capable of picking up sounds, either very, very subtle sounds that are taking place within this realm of existence itself, and it's also capable of being extended to other realms of existence, and so one could hear um, voices, speaking, music from other realms of, of existence. This is a little bit like having a shortwave radio where you can put turn the shortwave radio and then you can get <laughs> broadcast which is taking place from Japan, Thailand, Philippines, Britain, France, Germany, um, the United States, Mexico, any place in the world. All the time actually those sounds are coming and the radio waves are coming and they're bombarding us right now. So if actually there's a shortwave radio here, if I were to put on the shortwave radio, then we would get these sounds coming from originating from Thailand, Japan, Taiwan, all over. But if I were to tell you that there are such sounds coming right now, then nobody would believe me. <laughs> Maybe if I told you that <laughs> right in this room that there's voices of men and women living thousands of miles away, <laughs> then you think <laughs> that I'm going a little mad <laughs> and they suggest that I see a psychiatrist. <laughs> but if I show you that, well, we have this device here and all we have to do is turn it on and turn the switch, and turn this dial, and then you can pick up those sounds and then you'll hear Japanese and Thai and French, German, and it's amazing. <coughs> so in the same way there are all of these sounds from different, even at this level of physical reality, from different physical processes that we can't hear. Even the sounds of, you might say, electrons swirling around the nucleus of the atoms, sounds of molecular processes, maybe the sounds of cells in the body, cells in the body communicating bits and pieces of information to each other. <coughs> there will probably be sounds coming from different planets, different, um, even different galaxies, 
radio waves from different galaxies all coming through the atmosphere right now. Normally we don't hear them because we don't have, we only have very limited faculty up here which can just pick up a very limited range of sound. Then there's all sorts of different planes of existence in which the beings are speaking to each other, communicating. There are hell realms in which there are beings who are being tortured, who are screaming and wailing and crying. We don't hear them. <laughs> there are sounds that are coming from the Deva worlds, from different heavens, from the Brahma worlds. There are sounds in the Asura realm. And the reason why we don't hear them is because the ear is undeveloped. But by the development of this divine ear faculty, if one wishes, one can just make the determination in the mind, let me hear the sound of the electrons, and one will pick up the sounds of the electrons. Let me hear the sounds of maybe you see ants walking in a, in a file, and then ants coming in a different direction, then they touch each other with the antenna. They're communicating information. Probably that information is giving off a little sound. If you want to listen, then you can hear the sounds. <laughs> so you can just listen to all of these sounds throughout all the different realms of existence even sounds that are coming from distant world systems, different galaxies, they all become accessible to us. <coughs> okay, then the Buddha gives a simile for this, that it's just like a vigorous trumpeter who might make himself heard without difficulty in the four quarters. Actually, it seems the simile has to be inverted to get the sense. It's just as the trumpeter will make himself heard in far distant regions, so one who has the divine ear can pick up sounds that are coming from distant regions, from other world systems. And so there are many disciples who have reached perfection in that world. Okay, the next type of higher knowledge is called Parachita Hariyaya. It's the knowledge encompassing the mind of others, the knowledge of reading the thoughts of others. Okay, and so the Buddha says, I have proclaimed to my disciples the way to understand the minds of other beings, of other persons, having encompassed them with their own minds. That is, one, one wants to understand the mind of another person, one directs one's own mind to that person in order to 
discern their thought process, to discern their states of mind. It's said in the Gisudi Magga that the way that one does this is that first one has to be able to read the, or to see the heart base in another person. The heart base is the physical basis of consciousness. And according to the old ancient Indian physiology, it was believed that there's a certain region in the heart which is functions as the base for consciousness. And so conscious processes take place based upon this region in the heart. Perhaps nowadays we would locate this in the brain, but um, I'm not really so convinced that it's wrong to describe to the heart some role as the function, to the heart some role as the basis of consciousness. And so one directs one's attention Okay, one directs one's attention to the heart of the other person and one is able to perceive the heart base and by looking very closely at the heart base with a strong intention of knowing that person's state of mind at a certain point the thoughts or mental states of the other person become clear. I think that's the initial way to develop the skill. But once a person becomes experienced in this, in this practice, then they no longer have to rely on the heart base, but they can just form the determination to know another person's mental states, and then directly they will be able to read the person's mind. <coughs> Okay, and so if one wants to know another person's mind, then one makes this determination, and then one can know when the mind is affected by lust or free from lust, affected by hatred, free from hatred, affected by delusion, free from delusion, and so on. The text specifies 16 different states of mind. Okay, then the Buddha gives another quite appropriate simile. He says it's just like a man or a woman who's fond of ornaments and they like to dress up and appear beautiful. And so this person might be looking at his or her face in the mirror. <coughs> and then if there is a spot on the face, they would be able to see that there is a spot some kind of dirt or some <coughs> deformity on the face. And if there's no spot, then they will know that there's no spot. <coughs> okay, so this is the way to develop the knowledge encompassing the mind of others. Okay, the next is the recollection of previous lives. This we've come across many times already, but I'll explain it in some detail again, just so that we have this whole sutta, very detailed sutta, explained at length. Okay, in this case, the disciple wishes to recollect his many past lives. And so he's able to recollect one birth, two births, three births, 
even many aeons of world contraction, many aeons of world expansion, many aeons of world expansion and contraction, and he's able to know his name, his clan, his appearance, what kinds of food he ate, the experience of pleasure and pain, lifespan, and so on, able to see all of his arisings and passings from one life to another. <coughs> and in the Visuddhimagga, quite interesting instructions are given on how to develop this knowledge. The basis for this knowledge is for the other types of higher super-knowledges is the fourth jhana. One has that very, very powerful, highly developed degree of samadhi, meditative concentration. Then when one wants to recollect the previous lives, at the very beginning one has to go into seclusion, enter into the fourth jhana, then one emerges. And when emerging, then the mind is very clear, bright, calm, concentrated, and very malleable and adaptable. So one could use the mind for any purpose that one wants. <coughs> and then one sends the mind back to stop recollecting the events that took place just in the immediate past. One recollects coming to this room or this hut where one is, has sat down to meditate. Then one recollects what one did before one came to this room. Then one recollects what one did in the earlier part of the day, and so on. <coughs> then one starts to recollect what one did when one woke up first thing in the morning. Then one will send the mind back what one did before one went to sleep last night. Then one could speed up this process, recollecting what one did yesterday what one did two days ago. And then one can recollect building up momentum going back months, years, even to childhood. <coughs> I guess that one is not going through every event, but one is skipping over blocks of time and just trying to reinforce the memory so one can remember things from earlier and earlier times within this life itself till one comes to childhood, then to infancy, then to birth, the, moment, the very moment of birth one can recollect. <coughs> then when one wants to recollect beyond birth, one pushes the mind back and one could come to the period, the prenatal period, the period of development as a fetus in the womb. Then one comes back all the ways through the prenatal period, right up to the moment of <coughs> what is called the Patisandhi, the rebirth consciousness. And so one could recollect that very first moment when consciousness sprang up in the mother's womb. But generally, when one comes to that point, then one runs up into a kind of solid wall beyond which one cannot remember. 
That is because there's a kind of thick barrier which separates one life from another. And so it said, when that happens, then one has to go back into the absorption, into the jhana, and again make the mind very collected, very concentrated, very bright. Then one comes out again. Then one brings the mind back to that state of the first moment of consciousness and makes the very, very firm determination to recollect the previous life. One might try and it might not work. If it doesn't work, then one goes back into the jhana, again strengthens the mind, then makes another attempt. As one goes on pushing again and again, it's somewhat like trying to cut down a tree by chopping it, a thick tree, chopping it with an axe. Each time one is chopping, one doesn't see, one is making much progress, but with each cut, one is removing part of the um, trunk which is keeping up the tree. And at a certain point as one chops, then the trunk will be reduced just to a little thin strand of wood and then the tree will just topple down <laughs> with a light push and it collapses. So in the same way, when one keeps on strengthening the mind in the jhana, determining to know, then trying to recollect, it's like cutting away that wall which prevents the memory of an earlier life. And as one goes on doing this over and over, at a certain point, the wall collapses, the tree falls down, and then the mind comes back to the death experience of the previous life. Then when one gets into that recollection of the previous life, then one can start sending the mind back through the earlier events in that life, until one is able to know what one's identity was, where one lived, one's name, one's family, the different experiences of one's life, and so forth. Then one could bring the memory back all the ways to the rebirth moment in that life. Then with practice, one pushes further, <laughs> and then one gets to a second life, a third life. and those who have very, very strong faculties can eventually develop this recollection even through hundreds of lives, thousands of lives, even to whole cultures, whole world periods. And so it's said in the case of the, some of the great disciples of the Buddha that they were able to recollect their previous lives even for hundreds and thousands of cultures of Ayanas. And in the case of the Buddha, the Buddha has unbounded recollection of previous life. When he wants to recollect any previous life, no matter how far back, he can do so. How that is possible, it's just inconceivable. <laughs> Okay, so now the Buddha uses an interesting simile to illustrate this knowledge. He says, it's just as the, the case of a man 
who might go from his own village to another village. Then he might go from that village to still another village, and then back to his own village. Then if he wants to, he can recollect, I went <coughs> from my own village to that village. From there, then he can recollect everything that he did in that village. I stood in such a way. I sat in such a way. I spoke in such a way. I kept silent in such a way. And from that village, I went to the other village, and so on. That is, we can recollect anything that happened to us just over this past day. I might think just that two o'clock I came from the forest hermitage to the Vipriyat. I spent so much time downstairs, then I came upstairs, I was here for a certain time, then I came here and now I'm sitting and speaking. And so in the same way, one could recollect what took place even in many previous lives. Okay, now we come to the next higher knowledge. This is called the Divine Eye, the Diva Chakri. And the Divine Eye has a number of functions, several different functions. Like the Divine Ear, it can be used simply to perceive events taking place in other dimensions of existence. That is what, or it could be used to perceive events taking place in this realm of existence, in the human realm, but that are taking place even far away, very, very, just out of range of the physical eye. So if I want to know with the divine eye what is going on in Colombo, then I can do so. I don't have to <laughs> put on a television set. <laughs> if I wish to watch crooked games going on <laughs> in Pakistan or India, <laughs> I don't depend on television sets. If I want to see what's going on in Africa, um, Europe, the United States, I don't need even a telescope or I don't need television set. If I want to see what's going on on the moon, Mars, other planets, I don't depend on information sent down from space, space, what do they call those explorers, these space explorers, but one just turns one's divine eye to these distant places, distant planets, and one could see what is going on. One could also see what is taking place in other realms of existence. One wants to see what's going on in the hell realms. One could see what is going on in the heavens. One could see. So that is the most general function of the divine eye is to see events taking place at a great distance or in other realms of existence. But the Divine Eye has another specialized function. We could call it even a more important function. And that is it can be used to see, to observe 
the process of rebirth, the actual process of passing away and re-arising of being. And in this function, it's called, in Pali, it's called Chupupapatanya, which means the knowledge of the passing away and rebirth of living beings. Chuti means death or passing away, and Upapata means re-arising or rebirth. And so this is the knowledge of how living beings pass away and take rebirth. And not only does it see beings passing away and being reborn, but it also sees how they are reborn, how they are reborn in accordance with their knowledge. So the same faculty then has another name, which is Kam Upaganyan. This is the knowledge of how beings Upaka means arrive, you could say, or pass on according to yata, according to their actions, come. And so this is a kind of knowledge by which we could directly observe the functioning of the law of kama. One doesn't have to depend on faith or belief in the Buddha, but one could just the way you might turn on the television set and you can watch who is winning in the cricket game. <laughs> so with this knowledge you turn it on, so to speak, and you see who is winning and who is losing in the game of Kama. And you see that there's a certain law just as the team that practices well and has good players, that is the team that wins, and the team of people with bat, the team with poor players, poor training, poor spirit, that's the losing team. So in the game of Kama, you could see that those who are well trained by doing good actions with body, speech, and mind, those are the winners. They take rebirth in the good destination, the higher world. And those who are poorly trained, those who act badly, who engage in wrong actions with body, speech, and mind, they are the losers in the game of karma. That is, they take rebirth in the lower world. <coughs> and so one could see this all for oneself, just as a direct visual experience with this inward divine eye, which arises based on the fourth jhana. According to the explanation in the Gisudhimagga, based on the teachings of the ancients, to develop the divine eye, <coughs> what one has to do is develop jhana 
especially on the basis of the life casino. Sometimes they say the fire casino can be work can be used for the white casino, but the most effective method is the life casino. And so in this way one gets a very bright, radiant, luminous quality or light seen within the mind. Then one makes the determination to extend this light outward. And when one makes that determination, then the light seems to spread outwards, and so it can illuminate <coughs> one's first, one's immediate environment. Then through practice, one can make the light so powerful that it will illuminate objects beyond the walls, so that even walls and solid barriers no longer obstruct one's vision, but one could see things even at a great distance. And then with continued practice, one could extend that light to the other realms of existence until one could see the living beings in those realms. Okay, then the Buddha uses Uh, again, a simile to illustrate how the, this divine eye is exercised. He says, it's just as if there were two houses with doors, and there was a man with good eyesight standing between the two houses, maybe at some distance, and he will see people entering one house, um, then coming out of other people coming out of that house, walking along the road, entering the second house, other people coming out of the second house, walking and entering the first house. And so there'll be this continual traffic of people between the two houses. And so in a similar way, the person with the divine eye sees not two houses, but he will see like six houses, six or five houses, five different realms of existence. And he'll see some people, those who engage in good actions, coming out from maybe the human realm will be in the middle. He'll see them coming out from the human realm and passing on to the celestial realm or coming back into the human realm in happy states of life. Then he'll see those beings who in the human realm do the bad actions coming out and going to the houses that represent the bad destination, the hell, the realm of ghosts, and the animal realm. Okay, so that is the divine eye. And all the seven knowledges that we discussed so far, beginning with the first one, was called, it's called knowledge and vision. That's the ability to discriminate the consciousness from the body. Then we had the knowledge of the mind-made body, 
supernormal powers, divine ear, reco- uh, understanding the minds of others, recollection of past lives, and the divine eye. All those seven types of knowledge are mundane knowledges, lokia. They are super knowledges beyond the ordinary capacity of the mind. Maybe they're boggling and incredible to our ordinary mind, but still they're not directly concerned with liberation, with enlightenment. They're still tied up to the round of rebirth. If they're skillfully used, they can help give us some inspiration and incentive for gaining liberation. Especially these last two knowledges, the recollection of previous lives and the knowledge of the passing on of living beings. When one has the ability to recollect one's own past lives, then one sees very clearly just how this whole process of rebirth for oneself, (coughs) it's just an empty drama, just like a fool's show, which is just believed by foolish people. One will see oneself maybe (laughs) as a king on a throne, ruling a country very powerful. Then maybe one will see one is so intent on conquering other realms, one sends one's armies out to conquer, then one sees one's chief minister, one has always been a little suspicious about him. And then one day when it's alone and some men come and stab you in the back (laughs) and you look up and you see your chief minister standing behind and his henchmen are there laughing as you fall over and die. (laughs) Next moment you recollect and you're coming to consciousness as maybe since you as a king you've been responsible for the death of so many people you come to life and you're a a dog (laughs) everything in your dog's life is just of so great concern to you (laughs) then what seems like seconds later you're maybe run over by a car or you're attacked by some wild animal then the dog's life is over and you're reborn just as maybe a child in an ordinary, quite middle-class family, you're going to school, then you grow up and you just have a regular, very boring job, you get married, have some children, life is just so tedious, nothing good, nothing bad, then you pass away from that, then you're reborn, maybe, through some chance karma, maybe you're reborn as a hungry ghost after that, then you're reborn again as a, I don't know, you just see one life after another just rolling by and it all just seems empty and hollow and filled with so much suffering, always so much concern, anxiety, 
and it all just goes by and in a moment when death takes place everything is wiped off except the accumulated coma. Then one has this knowledge of the rebirth of others, the arising and passing away of others, and so one could just see the whole drama of samsara, just countless beings, hundreds and thousands of beings arising in one realm of existence, passing away in another. <coughs> and so when one has these two types of knowledge, then there comes a kind of disenchantment or disillusionment with this whole empty drama of birth and death. And so with those two knowledges as a kind of driving force or inspiration, then one develops the one knowledge which is truly locutura or super mundane. This is the knowledge of the destruction of the asapas, of the things. This is the asapa kaya Okay, the task of this knowledge is to achieve the destruction of the asapas. The asapas are the three most fundamental defilements at the very bottom, the very base of the whole round of birth and death, the round of samsara. What keeps the round of samsara turning are these three very basic kilesas or defilements. The first is kamasa, the taint or outflow of sensual desire. The second is bhavasa, the outflow of desire for existence, desire for becoming. And the third is avijasava, the taint of ignorance, of unknowing. And the word asava means literally flowing, flowing outward. So some interpret it to mean flowing inward. It's actually unclear what it means. In fact, it might have both meanings. So the asapas are these defilements at the very deepest level of the mind, which we can say flow first into the conscious thought process, into the conscious mental process. And then from the conscious mental process, they flow outward through the six sense faculties to become bound up with our experience of the world, be bound up with form, sound, smells, taste, tangible objects, and mental objects. And one becomes bound up with them in three ways. The first way, the most fundamental, is just delusion about them non-understanding. This is ignorance. Confusion, unclarity, 
non-understanding. Then because of that non-understanding, because of that delusion, one develops this intense attachment to one's own existence, one's own individual being. And one wants to continue to exist in one form or another. This is bhavasava, the taint of desire for becoming. And because of that taint of desire for becoming, one goes on grasping one form of existence after another, whether it be the heaven realm, the human realm, the hell realms, the animal realm. One doesn't really care, actually one cares, but because of that attachment to existence, one just goes on picking up one form of existence after another without any first point or any final point except by following the Buddha's teaching. And then once one has that attachment to existence, what one wants within existence is pleasure. One doesn't want pain, one wants pleasure. And that is the kamasaka, the taint of desire for sensual pleasure. One doesn't find hatred or dosa included as a taint because dosa is not something which keeps the round of samsara going. It's not as fundamental as this craving for existence, craving for pleasure and ignorance. Just hatred, dosa, is what keeps one tied to the lower world, especially to the hell realm. Okay, and so to, de- to destroy the taints, one has to develop insight, vipassana, into the three characteristics of existence, impermanence, suffering, and anatta, the non-self nature, the absence of selfhood in all phenomena. And when this knowledge of insight is developed to its highest point, then it reaches its culmination in the path of arahatsu, arahata mudda. And it is the path of arahatsu that has the function of destroying the taints, of uprooting the taints. When the taints are broken up and destroyed, then it opens up to the disciple the fruit of arhatship, the arhata pala, which is referred here to as the deliverance of mind, deliverance by wisdom that are taintless with the destruction of the taint. So that is the highest knowledge and realization within this very life itself, this taintless uh, deliverance of mind, deliverance by wisdom. And then the Buddha illustrates this with a simile. 
he says it's just as if there were a lake in a mountain recess, clear, limpid, and undisturbed, and a man with good sight standing on the bank would look into the lake and he would see shells, gravel, pebbles, and shoals of fish swimming about and resting. And he would know there is this lake with the clear water undisturbed. He would be able to distinguish those are the shells, that's the gravel, there's the, those are the pebbles, and these are the shoals of fish swimming about and resting. Actually, in another sutta, the Buddha uses this to illustrate the knowledge of the Four Noble Truths, and it actually seems to work, the simile seems to work better there, because there one is distinguishing different things, the First Noble Truth, Second Noble Truth, Third Noble Truth, Fourth Noble Truth. And I think maybe by implication, that's what's intended here, when one first gains this knowledge of the destruction of the pains, one does so by realizing the Four Noble Truths. And so one distinguishes the Four Noble Truths just as one distinguishes these different objects at the bottom of the lake. But then after one fully comprehends the Four Noble Truths, then one gains access to this perfect deliverance of mind, deliverance by wisdom. Okay, and so then the Buddha concludes and says, And so many disciples of mine abide having reached the consummation and perfection of direct knowledge in this way. And then he says, he concludes the whole discourse by saying that these are the five qualities because of which my disciples honor, respect, revere, and venerate me, and live in dependence on me, honoring and respecting me. Here he refers back to the five qualities that began with, quite a long while ago, it began with the higher virtue, the knowledge and vision, the higher wisdom, the four noble truths, and then the way to develop the wholesome state. And then after the Buddha spoke this very long discourse, the wanderer Udayi was satisfied and delighted in the Blessed One's words. So he didn't become a disciple of the Buddha. Okay, maybe that will conclude the explanation of this discourse. If there's any questions, then please feel free to ask them. It just it does seem to me, just from personal experience, that it seems that that is actually the center where these qualities like metta, karuna, spring from, originate from. Um, there might be a kind of subtle psychic system which one can detect 
you know, with the instruments of physiology, but in some way which would show one can't use physical means of investigation to find it, but with the kind of psychic knowledge one would be able to see that certain qualities originate and actually function on the basis of the heart. And um, that wouldn't exclude the possibility that the brain also participates in the um, in the pro- these processes of consciousness. So the brain could be acting as a kind of channel or basis for mental processes in one particular way, but not completely and not entirely. And I would say, this is really quite speculative, but I would say that there is some way in which the heart does serve as a basis or function of consciousness. I should also mention though that the idea that the heart is the basis of consciousness is actually never stated by the Buddha himself in the oldest sense. This idea becomes explicit only in the commentaries, though it seems to come from a very old tradition. I mean, it's not the idea of Buddha Gosa himself, but it goes back to the Puranas, that is, the ancient teachings from the early centuries of Buddhist history. Um, it's also understood the heart is the basis of consciousness in the ancient Brahminic texts, in the Upanishads. So it seems to be part of general Indian understanding. And that's about all that I can say for it. <coughs> Any other questions? Okay, then we will continue next week with the, <laughs> the sutta that I almost started today. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.